Nelson Mandela was in prison for 27 years. He was finally set free on February 11, 1990. So in honor of the 30th anniversary of Mandela's release from prison, we wanted to explore the complicated history of the United States and its relationship to South Africa. You'll hear more from Tim Borstelman about how U.S. policy towards South Africa changed over the 20th century. And you'll learn about the musical connections between the two countries during apartheid. But first, we're going to look at how African Americans worked hand-in-hand with black South Africans to protest racial injustice at home and abroad. And to help us tell the story, we're going to bring in a few voices. The first is Amanda Joyce Hall. She studies the global anti-apartheid movement, and she recently spent time in South Africa interviewing anti-apartheid activists. Amanda says there are some striking similarities between Jim Crow segregation and the apartheid regime. But there were some important differences, too. They were similar in that they were both anti-Black case systems that economically exploited, politically disenfranchised, and um, culturally denigrated Black people. Both systems were undergirded by federal and state laws, by local customs, and by indiscriminate racial terror and sexual violence. But there were also ways in which they were different. Um, The major and most obvious factor being that in South Africa, Black people are a majority that are being denied rights to participate in the polity by a white minority. And obviously in the U.S., the circumstances are different with Black people being a smaller percentage of the population. Amanda says another important difference was the civil rights available to African Americans versus Black South Africans. In 1896, we have the U.S. Supreme Court decision, Plessy versus Ferguson, that legalizes segregation in the United States under the albeit false pretense of separate but equal. And I think it's important to note that there's no such pretense of equality between black and white populations in South Africa in the program for separate development and in the program of apartheid. So to summarize, like the U.S. was a more duplicitous brand, more duplicitous in its brand of white supremacy. And Malcolm X notes this when he gives the speech comparing the U.S. and South Africa in England in the 1960s. He says that he has way more respect for a person who tells you to his face that he doesn't like you and doesn't want to see you and doesn't want you in his country than he does for, and he's referring to South Africa, than he does for the United States that will pretend like there's a possibility for democracy while at the same time being underhanded and reinforcing aspects of white supremacy in the polity. Malcolm X was just one of several African-American leaders who inspired Black South Africans just as Nelson Mandela inspired the world many years later. Some of the others? Martin Luther King Jr. and Muhammad Ali. A place where we see civil rights leadership directly in conversation with what's going on in South Africa is in Martin Luther King's 1964 speech um, when he goes to receive the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, Norway. Today I come to Oslo as a trustee inspired and with renewed dedication to humanity. 
in the speech, he the first half of the speech, he's talking about the need for civil rights in the United States. But the second half, he moves to condemning apartheid in South Africa. You honor the dedicated pilots of our struggle who has set at the controls as the freedom movement soared into orbit. You honor once again Chief Latuli of South Africa, who struggles with and for his people, are still met with the most brutal expression of man's inhumanity to man. We kind of see the, uh, the ways that civil rights leadership are trying to make people think about this enemy of white supremacy as having kind of multiple permutations in different locations. The black press in South Africa was operating under extreme censorship and could not report on political activities that were happening within the country or that were happening among black South African groups. But the black press did frequently comment and report and write articles on events that were happening in the black international world. They frequently reported on black radicalism in the United States, reporting on the showdowns between the Black Panthers and uh, the police in the United States. They reported on the trials of Angela Davis. So we see black radicalism in the United States making this feature in the South African black press. It's, it's reported in a way where they are championing these actions. Occasionally, they described Black power and how Black power became a source of inspiration and how it was analogous to an extent to the Black consciousness movement, which is the, which is the youth movement that begins in the late 1960s, early 1970s in South Africa. But also in the interviews, and this also came up in the press, was the way that Black cultural figures became prominent during the 1970s in South Africa. So the biggest example is Muhammad Ali. The image of Muhammad Ali is everywhere in the black press, following every single boxing <laughs> boxing uh, tournament that he does in South Africa. And when I asked someone about this, why Muhammad Ali was such a such a big deal in South Africa, he just said it was inspiring to just see a black man punch back and fight back. Okay, we're going to bring in one other voice in this topic. Robert Trent Denson teaches history at the College of William & Mary, and he spent a lot of time thinking about the connections between Black America and South Africa. Robert says that in the 1980s, Americans were bombarded with images of violence between the South African government and anti-apartheid activists. Turning on the TV, we saw the armored vehicles, uh, police and army units in the townships. Um, really very aggressively attacking Black activists, Black residents. 
As a young black teenager growing up in South Central Los Angeles, Robert saw similarities between the South African police on TV and the police in his own neighborhood. Because the police for us felt like a type of occupying presence in our lives. And they were very forceful in their enforcement of the law. One of the vehicles they used was called a Batarang. We called it that. They were sort of small armored tank units. And they were used to sort of um, bust into houses that were suspected to be drug houses. And sometimes they got it wrong. You know, they bust into some little old grandmother's house and um, cause all sorts of chaos. And we saw the same thing in South Africa. Uh, a similar kind of vehicle uh, busting into the homes of black South Africans in the townships. Now, they were called hippos there. So our batarans were their hippos. And in a way, it felt it was a similar dynamic of surveillance and enforcement um, of a law that sometimes you were on the wrong side of, <laughs> whether you did anything or not. Robert says black Americans and South Africans connected, both politically and culturally, over the struggle against white supremacy. In the late 19th century, for instance, African-American missionaries built churches and established relationships with black South Africans who were looking for more black-led Christian institutions. The American Gospel Group, the Virginia Jubilee Singers, who likely performed an arrangement very similar to this one, gave over 1,000 performances in South Africa over five years. The members of the Virginia Jubilee Singers were all formerly enslaved people, and black South Africans found their music profoundly moving. Robert says they recognized their story of suffering, but also the promise of salvation in the songs that they sang. So in the songs, these are the sorrow songs. These are the spirituals that come out of slavery. And so they speak of the sorrow and the suffering. That, uh, that 246 years of, of American slavery have wrought. But they also, those sorrow songs are also speaking to ultimate deliverance and salvation. So black South Africans are really paying attention to this because they're just coming under um, colonialism. Um, you know, the independent societies have been conquered by this point, And they're trying to wrestle with what it means to be under white domination. And they see, despite individual differences in their struggles, local differences, that there's a broader connection that they have to fight against, right? So this is a term that, you know, W.D.B. Du Bois obviously gives us, the global color line. But these folks see that in the 1890s. They're articulating this idea of a global color line, which is why they need to link up their struggle. So we see that dynamic happening early then. We really see it taking off with the Marcus Garvey movement, the UNIA. Marcus Garvey was a Jamaican political activist based in the United States. In 1914, he launched the Universal Negro Improvement Association, or the UNIA. The group advocated for black Americans to return to Africa and establish their own society, independent from their white oppressors. Because if Negroes are created in God's image, and Negroes are black, then God must, in some sense, be black. Garvey's goal of unifying the African diaspora, also known as Pan-Africanism, appealed to black South Africans. He's articulating this idea of 
Black political independence, economic autonomy, and full control over religious, social, cultural institutions, a self-contained Black world, if you will, in which Black peoples could be live to their full potential, be full citizens in a newly independent Africa. And so, because he's articulating race as a fundamental organizing uh, uh, force, mm-hmm. this is attractive and particularly in the places of Africa where race is really predominant. And yes, colonialism in Africa argues that race matters from the perspective of the European colonialists, but it really, really is emphasized in South Africa where we get a a heightened form of colonialism, segregation, and then a hyper form of colonialism called apartheid. And so because race means so much more in South Africa than even in other parts of Africa, the race-based appeal of Garveyism really takes off in South Africa as well. And Garvey uh, remains popular for a long time there. He, he gives black South Africans a language of aspiration for a long time, even longer than they had in the United States. Is that right? Absolutely. So for, for Garveyites in South Africa, it, the, the larger language of Pan-Africanism, that you're connected to a whole race of people across Africa, across the African diaspora, means that you're not a native. And so that term native, articulated by white South Africans, was to suggest uh, less than, not a full citizen, but a native, someone who's parochial, who's narrow, whose identity is based on narrow ethnic identities, not larger national or international identities. And so just the idea that you're a Garveyite, um, and some of them even called themselves Americans to identify themselves with African-Americans, huh. uh, was suggested a larger Pan-African identity and suggested that there was a broader destiny to attack this global color line. So does Nelson Mandela uh, absorb some of this spirit inspired by Garvey? Mandela comes, um, comes to uh, maturity aware of Garvey, aware of other African-Americans like W.B. Du Bois, uh, sporting figures like Jack Johnson and particularly Joe Lewis hmm. defeating German yeah, boxers sure. in the case of Joe Lewis on the eve of World War II and obviously Nazi Germany articulating these ideas of Aryan race supremacy. Um, folk like Joe Lewis have this outsized sociological impact because, again, you know, boxing in the ring, it's a fair fight. <laughs> you right. know, let the best man win. And this becomes a metaphor for African-Americans and black South Africans that if only the playing ground was level, right. we can achieve like any other race and indeed um, exceed expectations and even you know, go beyond. So the idea of the African-American and particularly the idea of the American, African-American who achieves who is successful despite handicaps um, or discrimination. These are inspirational examples that black South Africans like Mandela are aware of and and draw inspiration from. I feel strangely patriotic (laughs) knowing that uh, (laughs) African-Americans were inspiring uh, people on the other side of the world. And we're really grateful to you for telling us this story today. Right. But I think to bring this full circle from the Virginia Jubilee Singers in the 1890s and the admirations Black South Africans had to these African-Americans, I well remember Mandela coming out of jail and, um, first of all, not fully recognizing him because we didn't have an image of him for 27 years, so we had this much younger man in our head. But when he walked out of jail, we looked at him, we, meaning Americans, my 
group of African-Americans looked at him as almost a messiah figure, sure. almost. Not just a leader of, of Black South Africans, but a potential leader for us, too. My generation, particularly, were looking for new heroes. Uh, Malcolm X was long dead. Malcolm Martin Luther King long assassinated, right? And we were sort of looking around, what, who was the next leader, if you will? And Mandela was that for us. And when he made a tour of the U.S. in 1990, it was almost like a reversal of the old model of of, of black South Africans looking toward African-Americans. It was really um, African-Americans, at least in my world, me, that were looking to Mandela to be our leader too, to be a global statesman. And not just for black South Africans, not just for African-Americans, but a statesman for the world. A model for the world. Robert Trent Vinson is a professor of history at the College of William & Mary. He's the author of The Americans Are Coming, Dreams of African-American Liberation in Segregationist South Africa. You also heard from Amanda Joyce Hall, a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Yale University. 